Our text today is from Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount and on Matthew's Gospel. Here are the words of your Savior. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your pure word, your unadulterated word. We thank you for the voice of our Savior, which echoes through the centuries to us now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us into correct understanding of what your son has said that you would grow us in that, that you would strengthen us, deliver us from every distraction, every distracting thought, deliver us from every error today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. It has been almost 30 years since the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided the compound of a cult known as the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were originally Seventh-day Adventists, but they were expelled from the SDA church and they reorganized under the charismatic leadership of a man named Vernon Howell. We know Vernon Howell better by his name that he, he changed his name to David Koresh. He named himself David after King David and Koresh after the Hebrew spelling of Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And according to David Koresh, he was a new messianic king and his martyrdom would establish a resurrected Davidic kingdom with all the glory of David's empire and, and Cyrus's empire together. He believed also that all the women in his cult were his spiritual wives and he had multiple relationships with them no matter whether they were married or single he preached a message of imminent doom, and so the people stockpiled weapons and supplies in a compound there in Waco, awaiting the end of the world. On February 28, 1993, the ATF attempted to raid the compound over alleged uh, weapons violations, which, which we can oppose that as well as we can oppose the uh, false teachings of the Branch Davidians. We, we don't have to pick sides there. It was a tragic um, a series of events all around. Um, when the ATF attempted to raid their compound, the uh, Branch Davidians stood their ground. A gun battle ensued, which turned into a 51-day standoff that would eventually come to a deadly, violent conclusion with the burning of the compound, the death of 74, 76 Branch Davidians and four ATF agents. Every so often you hear about these doomsday cults which end in heartbreaking tragedy. They're people which are seemingly normal people. 
They look like us, and yet they're so deluded, so deceived by charismatic leaders, false teachers, who are able to convince these people to embrace this great network of lies only to lead people to their deaths. There was the Jonestown massacre in the 70s with uh, Jim Jones. There was the Heaven's Gate cult in 1997. Each of these each of these cults and each of these tragedies seem to have a few things in common. The group believes that there's some apocalyptic, epical event on the horizon. So there's this sense of urgency. Uh, there's this, um, th this, this sense of panic around something is coming, something is about to happen. And they believe that they're the only ones in the know. They have this secret knowledge of what is coming. There is a charismatic but deeply flawed leader who is almost always involved in some gross immorality. And the followers of these cults live with this extreme dissonance between what they're being taught by the cult leader and reality. In fact, if the cult leader makes prophecies that don't come true, there's this strange psychosis there where that strengthens their faith, that strengthens their belief in the false prophet, even when he makes false prophecies. It strengthens their resolve because he reinterprets things around the reality and they buy it. They fall for it. And at some point, tragically, everything begins to fall apart and ends in conflict, sometimes violent, deadly conflict, as with some of these groups I just named. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his disciples about the presence and the influence of false prophets. They are real. These things happen. People follow them to their own destruction. And right before this, Jesus said, there are only two paths, two ways. There's the wide path that leads to destruction, and there's the narrow path that leads to life. And now right after that, he adds to that, that there are false prophets standing at the mouth of the wide gate, convincing people to join them on the way to destruction. And the false teachers, they don't do this out of love or concern for the people they influence. They're, they're not sincere people who are just a little off in their theology, just a few tweaks and they'd be fine. No, Jesus describes them as ravenous wolves. That's a term that's going to come up a lot in the various warnings in scripture about these these false prophets. They are wolves. They are self-serving. They're in it for what they can gain for themselves. And in the first century, in the audience that Jesus is speaking to, there are people who are, are under the influence of just such false prophets. It may be too extreme to call first century Judaism a doomsday cult, but there are certainly nefarious elements within their society that are pulling that direction. And history demonstrates that they were indeed headed for destruction. And there were teachers leading them there. A host of social and religious and political factors were putting them on a path to a head-on collision with the Roman Empire. And in the space of that generation, which just in a few decades of Jesus's ministry, Rome smashed into Jerusalem and wiped it off the map. Jesus warns his disciples to beware of these false prophets that are putting them on the path that leads to that destruction. And he calls them to come away and to separate themselves, to follow him as the way that leads to life. But Jesus doesn't point them to a way that leads to life. 
No, he says, I am the way. Follow me. Uh, walk in my footsteps. And there is life and blessing. So Jesus' words here, as he warns of these false prophets, his words are packed with references to the Old Testament prophets who alerted Israel repeatedly about the dangers of false teachers. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah within just a few words. Jeremiah warned multiple times about those prophets who speak falsely, who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. Ezekiel called false prophets wolves. There's that word again. Uh, they call them wolves, tearing the prey. Ezekiel said they shed blood, they destroy people to get dishonest gain. Ezekiel writes that these wolves have robbed widows, they have violated God's law, and they have profaned God's holy things. It's all things that Jesus is going to say about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Ezekiel has already said these things centuries before. And all the same pronouncements that Jesus makes against his generation have already been made against Israel through the prophets of the Old Testament. Zephaniah spoke against the false teachers of his day by saying they're like roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. In every age, the truth is opposed by false teachers. It started back in the garden when the serpent opposes the word of God. And it's been going on ever since then that the serpent seeks to undermine, to twist what God has said. In every generation, in every time, there are opponents of the truth. Moses was opposed by the court magicians of Pharaoh. King Ahab surrounded himself with yes-men, false prophets, who opposed Elijah. In the book of Acts, as the apostles go out through the cities of the ancient world, they run into magicians and sorcerers who are like con artists, and they take people's money in exchange for lies. Paul warns the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 about the fierce wolves. Again, that word wolves, the fierce wolves that will come among them, not sparing the flock. The epistles abound with warnings about the threats of false teachers and the destruction that those counterfeits are leading them to. We're going to hit 2 Peter 2 a couple of times this morning. Um, I'm going to read a few sections from that because Peter lays into these false teachers. Peter reminds his audience of those false prophets in the past, and he says, there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying, that the, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber." It's, it's like everywhere you look in the Bible, there are these warnings. You are, you are uh, warned about the prevalence and the influence of false teachers. And so I want to spend some time today looking at the fruits of these false teachers and looking at what various sources and texts in the Bible speak to these false teachers and how they're described. Here, the Sermon on the Mount stands in the middle of a long thread of warnings about the reality and the presence and the prevalence of false teaching 
And not only the fact that it exists, but that it always leads to destruction. It always leads to death. And Jesus' warnings are certainly relevant today. You and I, we must be vigilant. The time of false teachers, the time of false prophets is not over. 1 John 4, uh, uh, Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false teachers are in the world. And Jesus commands his followers to not be naive, but to pay attention and to listen. You cannot just read every book and accept every book that comes from a Christian publisher or a book that, by an author that claims to be a Christian. You can't just accept every website or podcast or radio show. You can't just go to any church or listen to any kind of teaching that claims to be Christian. We live in a time in history where every false teacher has a Twitter handle. Every false teacher has a YouTube channel. And we must exercise discernment all the time as we scroll through these things. You know, when somebody has flowers and a Bible verse, that doesn't mean that they're an authority on Scripture. That doesn't mean you can trust them just because they have a nice presentation. Uh, that doesn't mean they have great sound teaching. Jesus said, you can tell false teachers. You, you can pick them out. You can tell them by their fruits. You don't get grapes from thorn bushes. You don't get figs from thistles, Jesus says. And you don't get truth from false teachers. So you get to know the false teachers and you can pick them out by paying attention to their fruits. What are some of the marks? What are some of the indicators? What are some of the fruits of false teaching? Well, let's look at a few of these. The first glaring, obvious fruit of false prophets is a false gospel. This ought to be the one that all the bells and all the alarms go off in our head when we hear any twisting of, of the gospel. They always want to add something or alter something in the gospel, either by making sin not really sin or, or saying that in some way man is not really a sinner, man is not that bad off by by softening God's perspective on sin, say, well, God would never judge anyone. God has no standards. God has no law. God has no expectations. God is only love, love as they define it. Or they may say that God's justice can be satisfied by the works of sinful man, that we have the ability to earn our way into God's favor. Or that you can trust in Jesus, without repenting of your sin, without putting away the old man, without confessing Christ as Lord and King, without taking up your cross, you just, belief is just this mental adjustment that doesn't, doesn't require anything. You believe something mystical about Jesus and you're just fine. You just do whatever you want to do. Uh, Jude 1.4 warns us about those who creep in, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they use the grace of God as a license for evil. See, if God doesn't require holiness, and, and if man really isn't dead in his sins apart from the work of Christ, then what point is the cross? What point is the obedient life of Jesus 
on our behalf. It becomes altogether unnecessary. We nullify the cross when we say the sin is not really that big a deal and God really doesn't require holiness and the gospel is twisted. A corrupt gospel is the chief mark of a false teacher. But there are many more subtle marks. Jude says they creep in. Jesus says they disguise themselves. And they do this by quoting scripture. Satan quotes scripture when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. They can use the Bible, twisting the scriptures, but they use all the right terminology. They're using the same words that you and I use, but they fill it with their own meaning. They redefine everything. When a when a Mormon talks about Jesus, understand that he's not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. That um, when a Jehovah's Witness talks about salvation, he's talking about something else. He's using that word in a different way. When either of them talk about God, they aren't talking about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is triune. They both deny the Trinity. The JW, the Jehovah's Witness God and the Mormon God is a Unitarian God, which means you always have to stop and ask them to define their terms. Because when they start talking about Jesus, you can say, oh, okay, I, I, I see, it, but that's not the Jesus in the Bible. The Jesus in the Bible is not the brother of Satan. That's what the Mormons believe. You see, they're, t they're using our words, but they're pouring their own meaning into it. So they'll always present a distorted, a twisted view of Jesus, either by denying his humanity or his deity. And before the Bible is even completed, before the canon of scripture is even finished, the apostles had to defend against Christological heresies. That is, there's false teaching about the person and work of Jesus. Before the Bible's even complete, in, in 1 John, the apostle John says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Well, what he's dealing with is the Gnostic heresy that says Jesus was not incarnate. Jesus didn't take on human flesh. Because the person of Jesus is under attack by false teaching. If you can corrupt who Jesus is, everything begins to unravel. The person and nature and work of Jesus is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, but a false teacher will target that and corrupt it, will distort that or distort some feature or some, some false, they'll present some false formulation of the Trinity. They'll deny that the members of the Trinity are co-eternal or co-equal persons. In addition to that, in addition to twisting the gospel or disrupting the, the definition of who Jesus is or, or, or distorting the Trinity, they'll undermine the authority and deny the authority of the scriptures. Again, like it started with the serpent in the garden. When, when the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? That's how they start. That's how they begin. Does the Bible really say? Does God really teach? And so they undermine trust in the historicity, the infallibility, and the reliability of the scriptures. They'll, they'll say things, well, you know, Paul was a misogynist, so you can't take anything he says seriously. You can't, you can't trust Paul. Or, uh, or, or they'll say things like, you know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, uh, was a lack of hospitality. So don't read anything else into that. That's what's going on there. It's just a lack of hospitality. Well, if there's anything that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't a lack of hospitality. It was an abundance of hospitality. It was the wrong kind of hospitality. Um, I've heard a liberal uh, preacher uh, locally 
Um, every once in a while, I just surf and say, what's going on in these places with the rainbow flags? You know, what, what's going on around here? And, and one local guy said, you know what? Fornication is anything that's done without consent. If there's consent, it's fine, it's holy, it's acceptable. But fornication, um, sexual sin, is anything that's done without consent. Is that how God defines it? You see, everything is distorted because they don't take the Bible seriously. They feel free to eliminate or explain away anything that challenges their sin. The second commandment forbids making images and bowing down to them. But there are whole branches of the church that do it anyway. And they say, you're misunderstanding what you're reading and trust us, we know what we're talking about. Trust us, not the Bible, is the hallmark. That is the fruit of the false prophet. If the Bible isn't authoritative, and if it isn't sufficient to answer our questions, if it isn't sufficient to lead us into a saving knowledge of Jesus, if it can't be relied upon to instruct us in how to please God, then what is our authority? Where do we go for answers? Well, the false teacher has an answer to that. You just replace the Bible with him. He is the authority. They claim that God speaks to him directly. God showed me this. God told me that. And, and who can dispute that? How can you argue with that at that point um, when they're that deluded? They replace themselves um, and their authority. They've, they've put themselves forward as the authority over Scripture. False teachers also make predictions that don't come true. And Moses warned about this. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing that does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Uh, can you follow that math? If a prophet says something that doesn't happen, he's not speaking for the Lord. Now that seems to be like, that's, that's pretty easy to, to figure out. But that's, that's, just in case you, you don't get that or don't understand it, the, the law makes it clear. Moses says, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You shall not fear him. Don't listen to him. Don't give him any credit. Don't, don't give him an audience if he says things that don't come true. Well, in the 1970s and 1980s, the TV and radio airwaves were full of date-setting Bible prophecy experts and the guys who said that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is all about the Cold War between the United States and Russia, I'm not sure if you've checked the newspapers late, but they were wrong. They were wrong on all that. They were not true. All of that has turned out to be false. And over the last few years, we've had waves and waves of false prophets on the internet and on cable news. And I'm saying on both sides of cable news, full of theories and bold predictions that have all turned out to be demonstrably false. They have said things are going to happen that have not happened. And yet, just like the zealots and the opportunists of the first century, somehow they are still wildly successful in provoking people to doing and saying really dumb and destructive things. There are manipulators today who will capitalize on your anger and on your frustration. They will rile you up with false predictions, get you really irritated over things that will never happen and bait you into foolish actions and bring shame to the name of Jesus. Why would anybody listen to sources that discredit themselves? Moses said, don't listen to the false prophet. They make false predictions. They're not prophets of God. 
Some teachers, some false teachers will conveniently leave things out or they'll skip over sections of the Bible. Well, we don't, we don't talk about that because that doesn't fit in our system. That doesn't fit with our, our structure, our framework. And I hope you understand one of the reasons that we go ordinarily through books, verse by verse by verse, is I don't want to ever leave anything out. I don't want to ever ignore anything. And there are times we come across passages we got to figure out. We've got to listen. We've got to hear. We've got to submit. We've got to humble ourselves and hear what this book says so that we can obey it. We're not going to explain it away. We're going to work to understand it. But the false teacher wants to conveniently hope that you're not paying attention to this over there. And in order to create a distraction, a little diversion, they pick some obscure or arcane issue and blow that out of proportion. They'll fixate on something and make that thing the whole gospel, the whole message of the Bible. I know of an internet keyboard warrior who for years has fixated on the issue of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's made an entire theology. For him, everything is about head coverings. If he's typing, it's about 1 Corinthians 11 and it's about head coverings. It doesn't matter what anybody posts or writes or, or, or talks about, he is going to bring it back to head coverings. That is his theology. He runs everything through the head covering filter as he understands it, which may or may not even be a very um, orthodox understanding of that to begin with. But it is a test of orthodoxy, and he lives to argue about that. And you ask, where does the Apostles' Creed talk about head coverings? Your interpretation of it. Where does the Nicene Creed cover that? Does the Westminster Confession spend a lot of time on head coverings? How about the Heidelberg Catechism? Now, if something is in scripture, we need to listen, we need to understand, we must obey. I'm not setting the creeds and confessions over the scriptures. What I'm saying is, is that here we have representations of what hundreds of years of Christians have said, this is important, this is critical, get this right. And what the false teacher does is brings something outside of that and makes it a hill to die on and runs everything through that filter. You know everything's not a hill to die on, right? I, ho I hope we're all in agreement on that. that. There are hills to die on, but, but you have to strategically pick your battles. And what false teachers will do is find some arcane thing and hammer on it, and because it's novel, and because nobody else is talking about it, they make themselves an authority on this thing, but the fruit of this is not maturity, it's just endless conflict. That's all that it's producing, just turmoil and argument. And Paul directed Timothy along these lines. Paul said to Timothy, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. False prophets, pro false teachers are not after edification. They're not after growth and maturity and faith. False prophets are after something else, which is endless turmoil and division and argument and, and creating this us against them thing where they can pick something and they can have their team and then everybody else is on the outside and now we have a conflict and it justifies our existence. False teaching, when Jesus says, look at their fruits, false teaching invariably works out in immoral behavior, moral failure. Poison wells, 
poison wells give poison water. Jesus says bad trees bear bad fruit. And the fruit of false teachers is invariably, inevitably sinful lives. They steal money. They fleece the congregation. They're involved in all kinds of sexual sin. They bully. They coerce. They manipulate. And it's no surprise when these things happen or why it happens. If you don't have the Spirit of God alive and at work in you, you cannot obey God. Romans 8, 7 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And they are in the flesh. If you're preaching a corrupt gospel, if you're distorting the person and work of Jesus, if you're denying the authority of scripture, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to be the fruit of that? And then when confronted with their sin, is there repentance? Is there weeping? Do they turn from their sin? Do they renounce their former teaching and behavior? No, they double down. They develop an entirely new theology, a new framework that supports them in their behavior, and they lead their followers deeper into sin. Second Peter 2, again, Peter says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. A false teacher cannot lead you into holiness and righteousness and the true liberty of pleasing God with your life. He will only lead you into bondage and into greater slavery to sin and death. So what are our instructions regarding false prophets? Well, Jesus says, beware. That is the imperative. Beware. Well, that tells us that they're dangerous. When Jesus says, beware, they're dangerous. If you see a sign that says, beware, you know to take caution. Beware, high voltage. Okay, that's not a swing set. That's not something to play on. That's not something to fool around with. Beware, beware of sharks. If I see that sign, I'm keeping my toes in the sand. I'm not going in the water. The word beware is meant to stop you in your tracks. Proceeding, going further is incredibly risky. So Jesus says, beware false prophets. Stop, hold up, don't go any further. Don't expose yourself to their teaching. Thoughtlessly or mindlessly give yourself over to them. Handling them is dangerous. If you're going to read them, and sometimes you may, you may want to say, what are they going on about? What are they saying? You hold them at arm's length. You may listen to what they have to say, but you don't submit to their arguments. You don't submit yourself to their authority. You're not persuaded by what they're saying. You don't get sucked into their rationale. Their lies are poisonous. They will mess you up. And godly men protect the weak from their influence. Godly shepherds protect the sheep from false teachers. Back to 2 Peter one more time. Peter, Peter doesn't have any kind words for them at all. He calls them natural brute beasts. He says, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, they speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness and those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. There are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. They, they feast and they act like everything's normal and they're carousing and they're going along while they tear you apart. He says they're scabs, they're blemishes, brute beasts. Peter calls them beguilers of unstable souls. Jude says they are flatterers who pull people in through their flattery. 
false prophets are dangerous men. They're not anybody to deal with lightly or to take lightly. Jesus says, beware. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says, mark them and avoid them. Depending on their level of deception, just arguing with them may not even be fruitful. You correct them, you say the truth, you pray for them, but don't think you're going to be able to argue them into the truth. Paul told Timothy to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You can oppose them, you can correct them, but you must be aware of them and their influence and don't get wrapped up into endless arguments with them. It's not productive. If they're going to be changed, Paul tells Timothy, God must grant them repentance. God must grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Now, why does God allow them to hang around? Why does God allow these false prophets to come and go? Well, they do serve as a corrective for us. One benefit of false teachers is that they refine us. They put us in a position to clarify what we believe. All the creeds and the confessions are answers to false teaching. We, we define the Christian faith over and against the counterfeits. False, false teachers provide kind of a distorted vision of ourselves. It's kind of like looking into a funhouse mirror. Cults are like the caricature paintings you get at the fair. You know, when somebody does those uh, goofy, cartoonish character paintings of somebody, if you've got big ears, well, in the painting, you're going to have really big ears. If you've got a funny-looking nose, there's going to be a really big, funny-looking nose. They take something, and they blow it out of proportion, and that's what the cults do with the truth. They take some seed of something good, and they blow it out of proportion. When they do that, they show us what we're getting wrong, what we must repent of and correct in order to oppose falsehood and correct it in ourselves. Now, in every place that these false prophets are mentioned, we read about their judgment. Jesus says what's, what, what happens to them in verse 19. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And listen to what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So understanding that they are um, headed for judgment, their own judgment, in knowing that, in knowing that that judgment ultimately rests with God, there's comfort for us whenever we see injustice abound, when falsehood and lies abound, um, it, it gives us comfort because usually when you see these things, it, it causes the sense of justice to rise up in us. We, we want to see everything sorted out today. We want to see all heretics anathematized. We want to see all false teachers banished. We want to see all the sinners excommunicated today, not tomorrow, not next week, now. And, and to a degree that happens in the course of history, in the, in, in the work of the church. But knowing that that false teachers are all headed for judgment comforts us in knowing that we're not going to get this all sorted out on this side 
of glory. We're not going to find all of the wolves in sheep's clothing. And we don't need to put ourselves on a crusade to find all of them. They are going to expose themselves by their fruit. There's rest for us in knowing that we don't have to sort everything out. Everything gets exposed and everything gets handled with perfect justice at the final judgment. I did know somebody who read these few verses and were afraid, they were anxious for themselves. When they read, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, they thought, well, could that be me? Is it possible that, that I could live my whole life thinking I'm a Christian and the Lord will just turn me away at the last minute for some arbitrary reason because I've been self-deceived this whole time? How would we answer that? And certainly hope that doesn't cause you anxiety and you haven't worried about that. But if, if you have, listen closely. Let's, let's think about this. Um, what is the context of this situation when, when at the judgment there are some being turned away who said, Lord, Lord, uh, we've done all kinds of things for you. And he says, I don't, I don't even know you. Um, what is the context there? Well, the whole, the whole context of this section is false teachers, deceivers who slip into the church as wolves, dressed as sheep, to prey on the sheep. Do you fear that happening to you? In fact, is that you? Have you, have you dressed up as a Christian so that you can come into the church to lead people astray? Are you, are you a false prophet? Um, should, you, should you be concerned about that? Uh, well, that, that's the question. Are you here to lead people to destruction? If you are, then you must repent of that and you must make corrections and you must cry out and trust Jesus. Uh, the context here is false teachers. Secondly, even though they're saying, Lord, Lord, they haven't done the will of the Father. You see that? Um, the answer from God is, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is the will of the Father in heaven? Well, Jesus says in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The will of God the Father is that you submit to his Son and trust him. God says on this day of judgment, you're calling me Lord, but you haven't submitted to my Son. And, and that's what we were talking about earlier, is that all kinds of cults and heretics will invoke the name of Jesus without submitting to him. Now, once again, should you be concerned? Well, let me ask you, is that what you're doing? Are you doing that? Are you carrying the name of Jesus in vain? Is the confession on your lips only and not on your life? Well, if so, then yes, you must be concerned. You must repent. What do you do about that? Confess your sin, confess your hypocrisy, and trust Jesus. But if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, you are not going to be turned away on the day of judgment. Still, third... When these false teachers are confronted with their unbelief, they have a catalog of things they've done for God in his name. They said, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done many wonders in your name? Is that what your hope is resting in when it comes to eternal life? What, what you have done, is that your gospel? Is your gospel, I am good because I do good things? Is that your gospel? Again, if it is, you need to repent um, of that. That, that's not the gospel. Um, but I don't think that's true of you. As far as I know you, I think you would say, as I would say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I, I, don't have, I, I don't have a list of things I've done for you, God, that are the justification for my, my entering into eternal life. 
On the day of judgment, if God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? My answer is, you shouldn't let me into heaven. That's my answer. You shouldn't, but for the work of Jesus on my behalf, but for the work of Christ on the cross. That's all I have, Jesus and his work on my behalf. If, if, if God uh, asks, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm not going to hand him a resume. I'm not going to say, here are all the things that I've done. And yet these false prophets do that. You see, it's, uh, it, it betrays their um, distorted view of the gospel. And then fourthly, what they point to is not, Lord, look how we've loved widows. Look how we've served the brokenhearted. Look how we've loved the poor. No, what do they list? They list the miraculous, the spectacular. It's, it's nothing ordinary. It's all about show and appearances and the spectacle that brings attention to them. It's not about obedience. They say, look at all these amazing things we've done. So any of that is, if any of that is true of you, if you're guilty of any of these errors, I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to give you false security. If you're, if you're uh, uh, carrying the name of Jesus in vain, if you think your entrance into glory is based on a whole list, a litany of things you have done, then you must repent of that. You must correct that. You must cry out to Jesus and confess your sins. But, but if you aren't engaged in any of that, then rest in hope that this isn't talking about you. This is not, this is not you who gets turned away. Because our hope is always in the work of Jesus alone. And you continue to trust in Christ alone, not what your hands have done like these false prophets do on the day of judgment. So Jesus calls us here in this section to beware of the very real presence and the danger of false teachers who preach deviant gospels, who twist the person and work of Jesus, who undermine the authority of scriptures, who lead corrupt, immoral lives, who would use you and would call unwitting, naive people to join them down that broad road that leads to destruction. Jesus exhorts us here to know that they exist and to know that their influence is real. He commands us to watch out for their fruits, to avoid them, correct them, oppose them, Pray for them, but don't submit your minds to them. Pray that the Lord would grant them repentance and that he would preserve his church in truth. And let's do that now. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, and with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, thy son, our savior, amen.